Uh, we, are, we are continuing our study of Genesis this morning, and we have observed a, a recurring theme throughout this book. For those of you who have joined us uh, for any length of time for this study now, it is the central message of the entire Bible. In fact, it is the gospel, the good news that though we humans are sinful to our core, we are messed up, uh, and we do mess up at nearly every turn, and yet God is forgiving, and he's merciful, and he's even redemptive. God actually takes our brokenness, our mistakes, and he turns it, and he uses it to bring about his own good plans and promises in spite of us and out of love for us. That's the kind of God we serve. God did that for Adam and Eve, we saw. He did it for Noah. He did it for Abraham multiple times. He did it for Jacob's father, Isaac. And we've already seen him do it for Jacob. Jacob, uh, who his faithless deception, he tricked Esau out of his birthright. He tricked his father, Isaac, out of his blessing. Even when Jacob himself was tricked by Uncle Laban, Laban last week in uh, chapter 29, we saw God used Jacob's multiple marriages, even polygamy is not too big for God to redeem it, and God used that uh, for his own good purposes in Jacob's life, namely to make Jacob the father of a multitude, and that's where we're going to pick the story back up this morning, toward the end of chapter 29, if you have your Bibles and want to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one of those at the info bar as well. But what we're going to see this morning is that, that same theme on display once again, but this time it's on steroids. Uh, it's not just that we mess up and God redeems. Here, we're going to see double the sin, double the redemption. Twice the sinfulness on our part, twice the, the, the forgiveness and, and mercy and, and redemptiveness on God's part. And it's a pattern that's going to continue over the next three different episodes. We're going to cover the first two of those today, and as I said, next week we'll finish chapter 31. But all of these little mini stories have a very similar plot outline that you'll find there in your bulletin. We'll work two-thirds of the way through. A conflict provokes a superstitious, fertility-driven act of idolatrous deception which God then uses to teach us a lesson and to fulfill his promises. Kind of a long-winded outline, but that's, that's, that's the common theme running through all three of these stories. Conflict, the conflict itself is not sinful. Jesus got into plenty of conflict in his time on earth. God engages in conflict with Satan. The double sin that we're referring to, and we're going to see in each of these stories, occurs when conflict provokes Leah and Jacob and Rachel here to resort to pagan superstitions, superstitious, and to idolatrous deception in order to get the thing that they want most in life, which is not God. So that's superstition, the way that they go about getting it, and the thing that they're trying to get, not God, both sinful. Namely, the thing that, that everybody wants here is babies, that's the fertility-driven part. All three stories share that in common. So let me explain. Babies in the ancient world were extremely important. Today, couples will often delay childbearing as long as they possibly can. We can't afford to have a baby yet because we raise them to be little freeloaders for 18 or 22, 26. Some of y'all are still counting, haven't kicked them out of the basement yet. However many years, 
But back then, the mindset was we can't afford not to have a baby because they're going to be out in the family field working by age four or five. They're going to be the ones taking care of us in our old age, not shipping us off to some retirement home we paid for ourselves. So fertility was prized, and infertility wasn't just feared, it was shunned, it was stigmatized. The inability to have kids must be a sign of God's judgment against you. That's what they thought. <clears throat> the key truth that we learn, not just about Leah and Rachel and Jacob here, but that we need to learn about ourselves. Scripture is a mirror that we hold up for ourselves this morning, is that in times of stress, we'll reveal what is most important to us and who or what we truly trust. It's kind of basic truth here. It's true in your life, isn't it? If you really want to know who you are, what's really important to you, and where your hope really lies, bring on the stress. 2020 was a great year for figuring out who you really are, not just who you present yourself to be, not who you want to believe you are, who you really are deep down. And it's true here in Genesis as well. Each of these conflicts brings out the deepest desires of the characters' hearts while exposing where their hope and their trust truly lie. And not only is their, their great hope in life, fertility, more important to them than God, but they are trusting, as I said, some superstitious practices of their surrounding pagan Mesopotamian culture to achieve it rather than trusting in God. It's the double sin. And yet, despite their double sin, despite their faithlessness, God not only remains faithful to his covenant promises redemptively, but he also, doubly redemptive, he offers us three really important lessons about who he is for us along the way. Now, typically, I make you stand for our scripture reading, uh, but since we're going to cover over 100 verses in these next two weeks, and uh, the theme is that God is merciful. I thought that I would give your legs a break this morning. Um, but let me, let me open us with a word of prayer before we dive in. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we turn to you now again, asking you to do what only you can do, Holy Spirit, to unstop deaf ears, to open blind eyes, to soften and touch hardened hearts, to see and to hear and to experience your mercy as if anew this morning. God, we know experientially, palpably, personally that your word is true when it says that our, our sins are new every morning. We, we invent new ways to sin all the time in old ways that we never get tired of saying. And yet, God, your word also promises us that your mercies are new every morning. And we need to see that this morning in your word. We want to walk away from here, not with just the takeaway that I'm, I'm beat up because I'm, I'm so sinful and who could ever love someone like me, but m even more blown away as we grasp the depths of our sin at the fact that you could love even someone like me, that you would send your son Jesus to die for even someone like me. Praise God. May that be our experience of worship through your word this morning. God, we pray this for our good, our growth, our sanctification, 
our, our godly, growth in godliness, but also for your glory, most of all, in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so we pick back up in Genesis chapter 29, verse 31, with conflict number one. This is Leah versus Rachel. Leah versus Rachel. When the Lord saw that Leah, verse 31, was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, hated here is used in the relative sense. Verse 30 had told us that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. So he might love them both, but compared to the way he feels about Rachel, what he feels toward Leah looks like hatred. And because of that, God has compassion on Leah, he showed her extra favor and blessing because as we already saw in our call to worship, God is near to the broken hearted. Verse 32, Leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Reuben for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Reuben in Hebrew means look, a son. Leah names him Reuben because she wants Jacob, every time he calls his son's name, to be reminded that she, Leah, is the one who has borne him a son. She is so hopeful. Now, finally, my husband is going to love me. And we begin to see this vicious love triangle developing here, an unrequited love triangle that What Leah wants more than anything in life is Jacob's love. But what Jacob wants more than anything is Rachel's love. And what Rachel wants more than anything is children. They each want the one thing that they don't have. Hebrews 13.5 commands us to be content with what you have. But Leah and Jacob and Rachel aren't just discontent. They actually covet what the other person has that they don't. They each break commandment number 10. Don't covet. Leah sees that Rachel has Jacob's love, and so she thinks, the only thing that can make me happy, you guessed it, Jacob's love. But Rachel wants the children that Leah has. And then Jacob has two wives. He's got kids. He's got Leah's affection. Jacob's got everything except for Rachel's heart. So naturally, that's what he wants because her heart is set on this dream of future children. But what about us this morning? Let's, let's ask ourselves this question. Hold ourselves up to the mirror of the scriptures. Are you content with what you have? Fill in the blank. Right? I would be happy if only I had a spouse, if God would give me a spouse, if God would give me children, maybe that's, that's your fill in the blank. If I got that promotion at work, if we were a little bit more financially secure, if the Cardinals would win the World Series this year. We fill in that blank with all sorts of things. What is keeping me from being perfectly content with the life that God has given me? Now, keep in mind that God does use a kind of holy discontentment at times to prepare us for what he has coming in store for us next, the next phase of life, and to to transition us. But he also still calls us to live in the present without grumbling. 
to be content. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I think that Psalm 37 verse 4 gives us the key. Psalm 37 4 promises, delight yourself in the Lord, and guess what? Then he will give you the desires of your heart. If your deepest longing in life, your desire is for the Lord, then he has already promised to grant you that desire. But be forewarned that if you're longing for anything else, God will often withhold that thing from you for your good until you realize that only he will ultimately satisfy you. That's what we see he does with Leah and Rachel. You know, he withholds Jacob's affection he, for a season, withholds children from Rachel, withholds Rachel's heart from Jacob. Verse 33, Leah conceived again. She bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he's given me this son also. So she called his name Simeon. Simeon means heard. Verse 34, again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Levi means attached. Verse 35, she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Finally, she ceased bearing. Judah means praise. Fourth time is the charm. If after three times you don't succeed, getting your husband's love, gosh, I can't have Jacob's love, I guess I'll settle for God's. How often do we do the same thing? Right? God is patient. The good news this morning is that God is patient. And to share from my own life, God waited for me for 27 years while I tried to fill that God-shaped void in my heart with everything but God, with family and approval and friends, girls, porn, sports, success, knowledge, even religion, before I finally gave up and turned to him. So I just encourage you this morning, if you're not there yet, if you're here this morning and you are still searching desperately for something to fill that void, if you're still, still searching but you're not yet drowning, I want to encourage you like my friend Dory says, just keep swimming. Like, swim harder because for most of us, we will not give up and reach for the lifeboat until we are absolutely drowning. <laughs> Swim harder and realize you will not make it to shore on your own. You need a savior. You need Jesus. Chapter 30 now. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's answer, uh, anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Again, be careful desiring something more than you desire God. That is a great reason for him not to give it to you. Verse 3, Rachel said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. 
because that worked out so great for Sarah, Abraham's wife, when she did the exact same thing with her servant, Hagar, you remember back in chapter 16. You're not laughing, you forgot the story. It did not work out well for Sarah. Rachel knew the story, but we are so forgetful too, aren't we? We fail to learn from others' mistakes. We think, oh, yeah, it worked out that way for them, <laughs> but not me in our pride. Or the definition of insanity, repeating the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. That's, that's us and our sin, going back to the same sins over and over again, thinking they're going to make us happy this time. But do they? Verse 4, so she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived, and she bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Dan means judged. Rachel says, God is setting things right for me at last. She's, he's judging right. Verse 7, Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. And so she called his name Naphtali. Naphtali means wrestling. Dan and Naphtali judged in wrestling. Does it sound to you like Rachel was finally happy when she, when she got the kids she's been waiting for all these years? Does it sound like she's finally fulfilled? It sounds to me like unless your desire is for the Lord, even if he does finally grant you that, that lesser longing of your heart, you're going to be left feeling empty inside if you're, if you're filling it with anything but him. Meanwhile, Leah, she is unlearning her lesson. She was finally praising God for Judah. After her fourth child, Disappointment, eh, still doesn't love me. But once this third woman enters the picture, Bilhah, and more importantly, a fifth and then a sixth son, now her four kids have competition for Jacob's fatherly affection. Now the birth wars are going to get kicked into overdrive. Verse 9, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And then Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Gad means good fortune. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Asher means happy. Is Leah actually happy? Does she really believe that she is experiencing good fortune? Or is she just trying to rub the scoreboard in Rachel's face? Check the scoreboard, six to two. She's not happy. Other women may call her happy, but deep down, Leah and Rachel are both still miserable, discontent. And so they do some negotiating. This is where the superstitions come into play. Verse 14, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now, in the ancient world, mandrakes were believed not only to arouse sexual desire, you can read Song of Solomon 7.13 for more on that, but they were believed to help barren women 
conceive as well. There is, of course, no scientific basis for this, but Rachel was desperate. I mean, she wasn't desperate enough to actually pray, like to, to ask God, but she's desperate. And as the most loved wife in the house, she's the one who gets to sleep with Jacob most nights when he's not busy impregnating one of the other three women. So verse 15 makes it clear that Rachel is the one in charge of Jacob's sleeping schedule. Leah said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Remember, I married him first, Rachel, even if I did have to trick him into marrying me. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And so Rachel said, fine, he may lay with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Rachel wants fertility help. Leah wants Jacob's warm embrace. It's a win-win. So verse 16, when Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So Jacob rebuked her and said, Leah, do you realize how screwed up that is? Like, first of all, Rachel is kicking me out of bed for some mandrakes. But Leah, you are my wife. If you needed some TLC, all you needed to do was come and, and talk to me. I love you. Is that how Jacob responded? No. Remember, Rachel and Leah are kind of in the sin spotlight here. But don't forget about Jacob. He's a, he's a pretty bad supporting actor himself. Jacob said, mandrakes. Sounds about right. Verse 16, so he lay with her that night. Watch how God responds here. When we prove time and time again that we are more screwed up than we can even bring ourselves to admit to him, God proves that he is more merciful than we could have ever hoped that he would be toward us. That's the gospel, by the way. Did you know that? That's the gospel that you are more sinful than you ever dared to imagine, and yet you're more loved by God in Christ than you ever could have hoped for. Does God rain down fire and brimstone on all three of them? Nope. Verse 17, God listened to Leah in spite of her sinful ways of going about this purchasing a night with her husband. She, she conceived, and she bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. And so she called his name Issachar. Issachar means wages. Okay. So let's, just when you thought that they couldn't get any more messed up, Leah just declared that Issachar was God's reward for her for sharing her servant Zilpah sexually with her husband Jacob. Leah thinks that God looked down from heaven on that decision and thought, wow, what an amazing wife. Leah, you are so selfless and loving that you would pimp your maidservant out to your husband like that for bragging rights over your jealous sister. 
Good job, Leah. That's, that's the state of her theology. But once again, we can pause and look in the mirror, check our own theology this morning, your own view of God this morning, be honest with yourself, with him. How often do you treat God like he owes you something? Perhaps it's not for prostituting your nanny out to your husband. But is it really that much ridiculous, much more, uh, less ridiculous to believe that God owes you something for attending church on Sundays? Or for remaining faithful to your wife when others cheat? For working hard and being honest in your business when others lie and cheat to get ahead? Don't get me wrong, these are all good things, friends. But they don't earn you wages from God. He expects that of us. All that and more. Payment free. We are working on this right now with our daughter Ellery. We've been giving her an allowance, not because we owe her anything, but to try and teach her good money management skills. The other day, she said, Daddy, I put all my toys away today after I played with them. That's not even on my chore list. Can I have extra allowance? I was tempted to respond the way my father would have. Do you want the one-word answer or the two-word answer? But I'm a pastor, so I can't say those words. So I said, no. <laughs> no, you can't have extra allowance. Like, what? Do you think that it's my job? To, to pick up your toys that you played with and you're doing me some big favor by, by doing that? But how often do we do the exact same thing with God? Like I ask ourselves, I can't believe that God is allowing this thing to happen to me right now after all that I've done for him. Like God owes me something, anything. For what? For, for living the, the way that God has created me to? With the, the life, the breath that he put in my lungs? Ephesians 2.10 says we were created for good works. I'm not particularly impressed when my watch tells me the right time. That's just what it's created to do. The only thing that God owes us is just retribution when we don't do what we've been created to. The Bible calls this sin, and it says we do it all the time. No one is righteous, Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is the good purpose for which we were designed, the glory of God, but we fall short of it all the time. We live for our own glory instead of his. This is called sin. And yet, what is God's response to our sin? Surely this time it's going to be wrath and punishment. He's bringing down the hammer. Verse 19, get ready. Leah conceived again. She bore Jacob a sixth son. When we sin, God just keeps blessing us. Not because of us, in spite of us. Because he's gracious. He gives good gifts to his children, and he loves us in spite of us. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will finally honor me because I've borne him six 
sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Zebulun means honor. She wants Jacob's honor. She's come full circle back once again to needing Jacob's approval. Verse 21, after that she bore a daughter and called his, her name Dinah, meaning vindication. Take that, Rachel. I win. Vindicated. And it is at that point, and not a moment sooner, that Rachel finally comes to the end of herself. Rachel has tried unsuccessfully uh, three, four times now, turning everywhere else first other than God. She tried yelling at Jacob, give me kids. She tried relying on Bilhah, her servant. That didn't make her happy. She tried the mandrakes. They didn't work before she finally cries out to God in verse 22. That's how it is, right? Sometimes God has to bring us all the way to our knees, face down in the dirt. We have nowhere else to look but up before we can discover him. It's been there all along. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and he opened her womb. If God is listening to her, I take that to mean that Rachel is now finally speaking to him. She's finally praying. She's finally turning to the place, the one that she should have turned to all along. God, I tried talking to Jacob, to Bilhah, to Leah. It's finally time to give you a try here. Again, we need to ask ourselves this morning in the mirror, is prayer our first response or is it your last resort? Is it your first response or is it your last resort in your times of need? Here's the good news for those of you like me that fail that test far more than we pass it. God is still gracious. God is still merciful. God just keeps giving them kids and blessings. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. That is the good news. Our God does not give us what we deserve. The wages that we rightfully have earned. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. We can just listen to, you explain it for us. The wages of sin is death. You remember all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the purpose for which we're created. But how does that first sin? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God that he does not give us what we have rightfully earned. And the same God who would one day offer up his own son Jesus on the cross in order that he might show you and me undeserved, infinite grace, eternal mercy. Here, he looks down on Rachel's tears. He hears her long overdue prayers of petition. And verse 23, he gives her a child. She conceived and she bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name. You ready for it? This is the climax of the story. The names are kind of the, the key to the whole story. Climax. Surely she's going to name him John. Great name my first name. God is gracious. Maybe she'll name him Hanan, gracious gift, or Amnon, faithful. Rachel names him what? Joseph, which means, your study Bible have a note, may he add, saying, 
may the Lord add to me another son. Get this. Rachel doesn't even have the baby in her arms yet. They are still wiping the goo off the baby. And she says, we're calling him Joseph. May God give me another son. This is the definition of discontentment. It's like when John D. Rockefeller, the richest American ever, worth over $400 billion in today's money, was asked how much money will be enough. He replied, just a little more. That's how we all are, right? Just a little more. Just a little more money and I'll be financially secure. Just one more child and we'll be happy. Just one more friend and I won't be so lonely. Just one more promotion, I'll be satisfied. Just one more drink and I'll feel better. With everything but God, you will always need just a little more. God is the only thing you can want more of, hunger and thirst for more of, and yet he paradoxically leaves you feeling full, satisfied, content, because God has designed us with a God-shaped hole in each of our hearts that only he can fill, and so our hearts really are restless until they find their rest in him. God alone is sufficient to fill the void in your heart. Have you realized that yet this morning? It took Rachel and Leah and Jacob, God knows how long, how many years we're talking about here. It took me 27. Have you realized that yet this morning? God alone is sufficient to fill that void in your heart. Yet once again, God in his mercy, he responds to Rachel's ungrateful idolatry by not by punishing her, but by actually giving her another son, Benjamin. Later in chapter 35, the added son that she asked for here in chapter 30, she will receive because God is gracious. That's the kind of God we serve. Even when we prove that we're faithless, we want other things more, he just keeps blessing us with good gifts we don't deserve. And then God uses those gifts, the gifts of these 11 half-brothers, the soon-to-become 12 tribes of Israel. He uses them to fulfill his own good promises to us. Remember that God had promised to make Abraham and Isaac and Jacob into a great nation, a people. And this is how he did it. God worked through the faithless, superstitious, idolatrous, adulterous, deceptive sins of Leah and Rachel and Jacob, he worked through them in spite of them to accomplish his plans. Why? Why does God use broken sticks to draw straight lines? To prove that he can. To prove that his goodness is bigger than your badness. To prove that his mercy is bigger than your mistakes. That's why he doesn't. And praise God for it. Now, I've got nine minutes left to cover all of story number two. It is by far the most bizarre of these three scenes, and so I'm going to keep it very simple for us. Verse 25, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I'll give it. So this is conflict number two, Jacob versus Laban. 
Jacob wants to go. God had promised him a people, a place, and prosperity. He has the people. He's got 11 sons, uh, four wives, uh, and a daughter. But wicked Laban is never going to let him prosper alongside him in Padan Aram. Uh, Jacob needs to get back to the promised land, back home, Canaan. But Laban selfishly wants him to stay. Why? Not because he loves Jacob so much, not even because he loves his daughters and grandkids so much, but because God blesses Jacob. And so while Jacob is out tending to Laban's flocks, the goats and the sheep have been multiplying like bunnies in heat. And livestock, you remember, was the currency of this ancient world. And so Laban is getting rich. It's all about fertility for Laban as well, specifically the fertility of his flocks. Verse 29, Jacob said to him, you yourself know that I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came, but it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. Jacob confirms it. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? It's like, just let me go home. But Laban won't relent. He says, what shall I give you? Name your price. Everyone's got a price. But Jacob said, no, 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 no. You shall not give me anything. You're not going to have any claim to the blessings that God alone is going to give me. No, Jacob says... If we're going to make a deal, it's going to be the kind of deal that only God could possibly miraculously bless me through. And so here's the deal, verse 32. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb. Jacob gets the black sheep, maybe that's where the phrase comes from. And the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So two explanations for what's going on here. One biological, one theological. The biological one, commentator Kent Hughes explains, normally shepherds contracted to shepherd for 10 to 20% of the flock as their payment, as well as a percentage of the wool and milk products. But Jacob's proposed deal here was extraordinarily generous and apparently very stupid. This quote. Most sheep are all white. Anybody ever seen a spotted striped sheep? And most goats are all one dark color, either black or brown. Mottled or striped sheep and goats are comparatively rare. Incredibly, though, Jacob offered to remove only the few multicolored sheep from Laban's flock as his compensation and then shepherd the rest of the plain-colored animals for Laban. And when they bred, the common plain-colored ones would remain Laban's while the rare variegated ones would go to Jacob. From every angle, Hugh says, it was a deal for Laban. Laban loves this deal. I mean, these are why wouldn't you? These are like Goliath versus David type odds. These are like the lion's den versus Daniel type odds. These are like fiery furnace versus Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego odds. You get the point? Should I go on? The point is, it doesn't matter how bad the odds are. If you've got God on your side, you're playing with a stacked deck. And Jacob could have said, I'll only take the albino sheep and goats. I don't care if it's 0.0001% of the, the sheep population. I don't even know how you have an albino sheep. But if God is behind it, he's going to make those sheep albino. And that's just the point. That's the second more important theological explanation of the story here verse, uh, in chapter 31 for next week. 
Jacob will explain, in the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped and spotted and mottled. Then the angel of the Lord said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. He said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped and spotted and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. In other words, God was the one who gave Jacob the dream, the plan. It's God's plan. God is behind it. And that's the only way it's going to succeed, miraculously. Despite Laban's deceitful attempt to further stack the deck against Jacob, look what Laban does in verse 35. That day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black. He takes all the black sheep out and he put them in charge of his sons and Laban set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Even with a very primitive understanding of genetics, Laban knew that without any striped or spotted goats or sheep in the in the gene pool actually mating without any black sheep in the flock, Jacob was doomed. How's he going to get any spotted, speckled black sheep? But what Laban didn't realize was that Jacob's got the God who invented genes on his side. <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's the key for those of us Christians who are the faithful this morning. Apparently, Jacob doubted it too. Because look at what Jacob does next in verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees, and he peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped and speckled and spotted, and Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks out in the troughs before the eyes of the flock and then they might breed among the sticks. But then for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay the sticks out there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger would be Jacob's. I told you the story got more bizarre. What's the point? point is this is just another pagan superstition, this, this pagan idea that sensory experience during mating could somehow affect the outcome of the offspring, that, that mating in front of striped sticks could actually produce striped goats. Once again, obviously no basis in science. But Jacob figured, uh, it couldn't hurt. Right? I mean, what if the pagans are right? What, what, you know, it's probably super. What if they're right? Though? It couldn't hurt. God, I trust you, but I'm going to peel some sticks just to be safe. I'm going to buy some mandrakes just to be safe. God didn't say a word about peeling sticks in the vision that he gave Jacob in chapter 31. So all of Jacob's stick peeling, all of his clever selective breeding tactics here were a gigantic waste of time. God had already promised to prosper Jacob to make the flocks striped and spotted. 
And that's exactly what God does in verse 43. Not because of Jacob's faithless, superstitious stick peeling, but in spite of it, God increased the man greatly, and he had large flocks, female servants, male servants, camels, and donkeys. It wasn't superstitious stick peeling or selective breeding that increased Jacob's flock. It was the sovereignty of God. That's the second lesson that Jacob learns here that you and I need to learn this morning. God is sovereign. God made it happen according to his own good, sovereign, unmanipulatable will. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things together according to the counsel of his will. And in the process, God fulfilled a second promise to Jacob, the promise of prosperity, of blessing. Not only teaches him a lesson, he fulfills a promise, blessing, not just a people, but prosperity. And next week, God will bless him with the third promise, a place. Jacob will finally leave Laban and head back home to the promised land. But friends, as we close this morning, perhaps you just need to be reminded today that God, in all his sovereignty, has promised you, if you are in Christ this morning, he has promised you that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, that God is not done with you yet. That's good news. That he is working all things together for your good if you love him and you're called according to his purposes. That's really good news. Whatever brokenness in your life right now, whether of your own doing or someone else's, you've sinned or been sinned against, all of it, God's taking it, he's using it redemptively for your good. That's his promise to you, Romans 8, 28, that nothing in all creation can now separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? And so you can put your whittling knife and your sticks down this morning your mandrakes down. All of your sheep sorting and your goat grouping, you can give it a rest. God doesn't need your help that much to accomplish his good promises in your life. He will do it. He has promised good to you. And in Christ Jesus, all of his promises find their yes and amen. Amen? Let's pray.